0: You're listening to BAU, Business As Unusual, the podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organizations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact.
1: So, there's yeah, so kind of there's two things that's, that stuck with me with me out of that. It was that one kind of her history so kind of actually how that's really played a played a role in uh, in where she's actually gotten to in her career. So someone who actually started off kind of studying botany and science and how that's actually really created a worldview for her about looking at systems through the lens of kind of actually how a scientist would look at it. And uh, she actually hasn't lost that in the transition towards actually what she does with street and kind of understanding that everything she does is literally it's about tweaking variables and looking at different ways to to pull it through. And, I mean, she's an incredible lady. I mean, it just was you know, inspiring sitting there with her and you know, you feel the passion literally pushing out from her, you know, and encouraging you Just to do more. Bringing you in. Just bringing you in. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And plus sitting in that plus sitting in that space, you know, and kind of the stories she was sharing about kind of all the stuff that's actually happened inside Imagine that house. You have a name for every brick in that building. Yeah. But it felt like as we were kind of chatting, like it's just you know it was brick after brick of of a story, and like she's not done, like she is absolutely not done with in terms of actually what she wants to take on and kind of change change in the world, and you know I think she's kind of um, yeah she's clearly got the taste for kind of actually change and change in a systemic way. That was the thing that I really took out of it. I mean I've been. I've seen lo- lots of kind of social entrepreneurship over the years, but she's truly understanding that the power in community is actually about how you build a different way of looking at things that it becomes more and more shared by by people and certainly kind of, you know, her take on, you know, food security and ensuring that all Victorians actually have a safe and secure um, supply of food. Um, yeah, I think that's what's next.
2: For sure, for Bex Scott, I hope so. Whatever she puts her mind to it, it seems like, It'll get done. What Um, hit you? What stayed with you? What stayed with me? The one thing that really stayed with me is her understanding of the environment and just um, being able to create an environment and work with lots of different people. A diverse environment for her is a healthy environment. So ecosystem was just resonating in my mind as I listened to her speak. And she was just, to me, was trying to curate, encourage a healthy ecosystem, an inclusive ecosystem within her community. And that was speaks volumes through even their case study when they went out and spoke to their... You'll get to hear this, but when he, they went out and spoke to their customers and they were trying to figure out how to create a movement, I think that story is just amazing, the detail that went into there and then also how to get more... She's constantly thinking, how do I get this person from this representative of this community? How do I get them here? How do I get them having a voice? Hmm. And that understanding was beautiful, but then on theme with BAU is her speaking on her path change that transaction when she's sitting at a cafe um was amazing that she can pivot and and can let go of maybe a path that she was taking but at the same time take that path like her narrative is so strong Hmm. um and it carried her through so Hats off. Well worth a listen.
1: Absolutely. Is um yeah. I mean, I I don't really have much else to add to that. I just think it's one of the most interesting kind of social change stories that I've actually heard. And I think it's also then it's the future that's the most inspiring to me. You know, kind of in a time that we actually live in now, where kind of you know, um, we we spoke with back kind of in the midst of kind of the coronavirus um shutdown, and you know, you kind of you're rocking up to a place that is normally vibrant and kind of pulsating with people, and it's dead quiet, but yet here is this woman at the helm who's taken that all kind of into a virtual environment and is busy building what is next you know and that to me is true social entrepreneurship she's not playing she's actually kind of experimenting finding ways to use this time to actually build what is next and that's uh, the most powerful thing in this conversation you're about to hear
3: it's something about kind of laying down roots in a place and you know, I was, I'm was. i not from Melbourne. I didn't grow up here. You know, none of my history is here. Mm. And I, you know, come from country New South Wales. And so, you know, the decision to come and build a social enterprise in a city that wasn't home um, meant that we we're kind of arriving here not knowing anyone and had no connection to any place. And mm. so, you know, bought a house here, but... As a little organisation, you know, our organisation was set up to be a street food cart and over time to be a whole heap of street food carts. So the plan was always for it to be this kind of ephemeral organisation that existed on the streets and was moving. Mm. And... It was the first time that as a young organisation we were given a place that we could be for 50 years. So we were gifted the place for 50 years. And it was just like we hadn't – it was like the first time it felt like we could put down roots. But then not only as an organisation could we put down roots, you know, I kept on thinking, well – you know, this building I know is 150 years old, but it has 60,000 years of history before it as well. And, and how how is the 50 years that we've got this, you know, this building for or this land for, how does that, you know, where where is that land, you know, that time in context to the mm-hmm. 60,000 years and then to the 150, you know, years of European settlement here and just tried to anchor us in place to, to the, that other history. And it was it was just like this really um, special thing that happened because, you know, as an organisation that's about, you know, creating community and bringing young people back in from highly marginalised situations and, and bringing them back in to feel like they connect, so much of how we feel connected is is kind of all of those stories and those layers and layers and layers of, social capital and history and people's stories that kind of are around us and it was like being given you know a 150 year old inheritance you know you got 150 years of stories you know up the chimneys of this place and you know thousands of people over time gathering in this place and and I'm just really interested about what that mean you know what that means to care for a place, what it means to grow a place and mm. you know grow grow new connections for people to, to think about what what places were and how to how to potentially, Honor some, There are things that we want to keep honoring, but there's a bunch of things that you know we need to evolve. Places as well. Mm. Um, what does it mean when places are loaded with history? And and some of those history, you know, some of that history is going to be highly traumatic for people. How do you move beyond that? And actually, how do you use places to heal? So yeah. if I look at this place, I just think of this as a place that that does an extraordinary amount of healing for young people that have been on the margins for most of their lives, yeah. and it says you belong here. This is a place that you're welcome. This is a place that can be life changing for you, um, but we also bring in, you know, members of the general public. You know, it's a social enterprise that that does, you know, that trades here. Our businesses, you know, are here. What we're doing is we're inviting the general public to come in and be part of that transformation as well.
1: Beautiful, beautiful. And how do you think the how do you think the history has kind of um, Almost it's like it's it's played for, right? I mean this this place as you're describing it has always been a place where kind of gathering and kind of coincidence has actually actually occurred. So I'm just curious about how does that play out in the in the day to day of being here from youth who maybe haven't had had a story being marginalized and you know, or trying to reconstruct their own identity through um through some form of transformation.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. And even for our young people, all of a sudden having somewhere that felt solid, like you could put roots down, really mattered. And, and you know, as you'd probably understand, you know, a young person who might come to us is coming from really traumatic, often kind of crisis situations. You know, you're coming from prison, you're coming from detox, you're coming from, you know, mental health wards, you're coming from really extreme circumstances often, and often you've been in and out of a service system. So it doesn't mean you haven't been getting help in other places, but you've often bounced around, you know, the service system for a really long time. So, you know, it's not unheard of at all that a young person might come to us with 10 caseworkers from 10 agencies. They've got a housing worker over here and a drug and alcohol worker over here and a mental health, you know, worker here. So, So they're just in and out of all of these different institutions, but those places always feel institutional. They don't feel like... You can dwell in them. They don't feel like everyone's welcome in them. You know, you're you're segregated when you're in those places. And what was really important, I remember the first conversation I had with our architects for this place, um, uh, architecture firm called Six Degrees, and I just said, I want this to be a place where, you know, it's highly dignified so it doesn't feel like you know you've it's a zoo where a whole bunch of customers come in and look at all the homeless kids or the kids that are having a tough time so it's got to be a highly dignified place to be but it's also got to allow you to to bring young people back into a community that they felt really alienated from. So how do we design the space so it's a place where you're really excited to be, but, you know, if you need to have time out, that's okay. So it allows, you know, we've built the space, I guess, to have lots of microclimates, so there's places where, you know, you know where to go to go and, you know, if you're having a tough time to go and, you know, have a cuddle with the therapy dog, you know, you know where she is. If, you you know, kids that might have otherwise had a panic attack and not be able to, you know, do stuff, you know, out in the world by themselves because of anxiety disorders, you know where you, you know, you're going to feel safe here. But um, we equally want this to be a really vibrant place that as a customer, you want to come and be part of that. And so... All of those things, you know, that placemaking is, is you know, obviously far more than the built environment, um, but the built environment matters. And I'm kind of interested in how do you build places that have layers and layers of depth and meaning and connection? And that, you know, I said to our architects equally, you know, I want you to feel like when you're sitting here that you know, the the plants could be growing up around you and giving you a hug, you know. Because normally if you're in a hospo environment, you know, everyone's trying to turn over the tables really fast. You know, you're in a cafe or a restaurant and, you know, the second you've finished your meal, you know, the bill's been put down on your table and it's telling you the whole time, move, 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 we need to get more money out of you, whereas I'm interested in places where we're actually saying to you visually and, and and know, you know, um, you know, through verbally, dwell, dwell, dwell. This is a place we're not rushing you out of. We want you to stay. We want you to connect. Actually, you're all welcome here. And there's one day, actually, I was looking out of the window of the office and I looked down into the garden and within about two metres apart, there was a whole group of um, brand new mums that had all of their tiny little babies, and all their babies were out on a on a rug. So the babies were really little. So it was so that um, all these little babies on the rug, and then like two meters from them was a whole bikie gang. And like, where the hell would you go where you'd see all these new mums and a bikie gang sitting side by side on a deck and grass together? Like, you just don't get that. So. I'm really inter- um, I'm forever looking out the window and going, "Who's here? But who's not here? And mm. why aren't those people not there? Wh- wh- who do we not see? Whose voices don't we hear? How do you, you know, how do you make sure that you're, you know, that you're listening so carefully to the voices that you're not seeing or the people that you're not seeing? And so. So yeah, a place like this, I think you know, part of the excitement is that it it brings people together who wouldn't normally be here. And our, and our kids have told us for years now things like, you know, the kind of places that you've got are places that normal people go. You know, I'm not normally welcome in those those places. I'm like, of course you are. This is your place too. So places mm-hmm. tell us a lot about you know, tell us you know, even if it's not stated. Obviously, there's places that feel highly welcoming and places that say you don't belong here. If you're a kid that's, you know, come from prison, you don't feel like the marble, you know, the marble hallways or the marble foyer of a major corporate is a place that you can go. It's telling you you don't belong here. So, how do we break down those spaces and make them, you know, third spaces for everyone? Mm, You've done
2: that so well here. I can testify to that coming (laughs) here um, and doing some work myself and just feeling... um, the space that is here and just seeing a lot of different people come in interact and, and the staff do such a nice um, genuine job and look like they're enjoying it um, and communicate super well. Hearing you talk about your story, um, understanding the layers that are here and what it offers, um, not only yourself to give yourself roots in a city, but also the kids to give themselves roots here as well and how you've designed the place. I really wanted to know what you noticed the change not only in the organization but the kids when you flip from being a street sort of based place not having roots to having deep deep roots.
3: Yeah. It's fascinating actually because our very first business model had us having a fleet of, you know, street food carts all over the city. And at that stage our plan was also to have essentially each of those little carts could become a micro-franchise for a young person. So we thought kind of longer term would end up with all of these young people, you know, being their own small business owner. And it was so fascinating because when we got our very first cafe, as soon as we had our first cafe, we had one cafe and and a number of carts, everyone wanted to work in the cafe and not on the carts. Now, you know it's Melbourne weather so of course you can understand that there's a weather kind of thing to it but then we got our second cafe that was bigger than our first cafe and then everyone wanted to work in the bigger cafe and we kind of kept on creeping up to to you know Cromwell which is you know where we are here which is a, a really big site and it you know it's not only our production facilities it's got it's got our artisan bakery here and our coffee roastery and our catering company but it's also got our you know head office team and our youth team so all of that kind of care function and, and office function kind of happens here as well. And so it's always been that um, our young people just so desperately want to be on the bigger sites where they feel this, it's kind of, a I guess, a bigger group hug. You know, you feel, you feel there's more energy on those bigger sites. If you're a young person who's been really marginalized for most of your life, which for most of our young people have been that sense of being welcomed into a place where there's lots of people, but also you're going to see people like you. You know, one of the things that I love about this industry, but also this site, you know, if you walk around the site, it's the United Nations, you know, you're going to see every skin tone here. You're going to see every you know color of the you know rainbow color. You know, queer you know queer community here. You're going to see trans people here. You're going to see queer like every every type of difference you're going to see on this site. And there's something really um, powerful, I think, about entering an organisation where you know that you're going to find other people like you, and you're not the you're not the odd one out. So. So, what happens, I think, on a site you know this site that combination of being large enough to have lots and lots of diversity, but also large enough to have a whole heap of micro environments that you can find you know find your little niche and then the other thing that we've done really deliberately is I guess build build our businesses in a way where when a young person comes in the door to us, You know, if they've been in crisis, each of them is going to have a different thing, you know, a different constellation of issues that we've got to work on. And so if we know, for example, that we've got a young person who um, has come to us with really severe anxiety, you know, an anxiety disorder and would have, you know, would have a lot of panic attacks, we wouldn't put them front of house in a busy cafe, you just wouldn't do that to someone um you know it's noisy it's got people coming and going it's frenetic you know it's it's um, it's got music, but that young person you put them in out the back in a beautiful quiet bakery that that's tactile it's not customer facing. It's slow, it's just, it's a total, you know, it's only 20 metres from, you know, the busy cafe, but it's a totally different micro environment. It's a totally different training opportunity for that young person. So what I like is that ability to, it's almost like we're curating six months for a young person and we know they come in as a cohort, but, but actually every single young person has a curated experience through the organisation based on their needs and their wants. So it's yeah, it's beautiful.
1: It is beautiful, it is, and it, you know it does. It, you know, part of, part of this, I think, what you're giving people is you know that sense of kind of place and kind of creating an area where everyone actually actually felt accepted and feels accepted. But what do you think brought, and who do you think actually kind of brought you from rural New South Wales to to doing this? I mean, kind of who actually set the template for you and kind of you know, I guess lit the fire underneath yourself to actually want to create something like this.
3: Oh, I guess it's a, I mean, it's, it's a bit random that I'm here in a way, um, certainly, you know, started life originally, you know, professionally, you know, with plans to, to be a plant biologist. So I certainly, um, you know, didn't ever set out to be <laughs> a social entrepreneur. Um, so and, you know, to this well, prior to this, I wasn't ever in hospital either. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a plant scientist who'd never been in hospital <laughs> now, you know, running hospitality, social enterprise. So it's kind of random. Um, but I think that combination, something really magical in 2004, I I went on, I was um, taking some annual leave and, and was volunteering um, in Vietnam for, for three months. And while I was living over there, I stumbled upon this hospitality social enterprise called Koto, and something really magical happened on that first meal that I had, and I, I didn't – you know, I was there by myself just having a meal, you know, having a lunch by myself, and, and it was this kind of defining moment. And I know, you know – most people will have a moment in their life or a number of moments in their life where, you know, everything that happened beyond that point was was different. For me, that was one of those defining moments. And and a number of things happened where I'd ordered my meal, the young person, I'd had a conversation with a young person who was um, serving, serving um, me front of house. And then I I uh, had a, lo- a lovely conversation with him and then while I was waiting for my meal, I read the postcard that was on the table and the postcard essentially explained that this was a social enterprise and that the kids who were all working in here were, were, had come from the streets of Hanoi. And for me, it was just the, this incredibly powerful moment of connecting the conversation that I just had with the young person to the meal that I was having to this amazing place and just... or a whole bunch of things i think fell into place and i it's only later that i've been able to kind of articulate what happened in that moment but it was a combination of i think realizing the power of the experience when you can connect the thing that you're doing to directly to to you know someone whose life that you're impacting you know wasn't like it was this you know I've, i've for years you know donated money to staff or been involved in charity projects but it's just nothing so powerful as having a person who you know, whose life that that you're impacting right there being a real person that's tangible. And and I think you know, often, you know, it's one thing to give money, but you're you know, you're always wondering, I wonder, you know, wonder who's being helped in, is it actually going to where you know, where you'd hope it would go? And you're often so distant from from where impact is created and, and we often we often kind of put beneficiaries in this category as the other you know there's someone there's there's this group of people that are out there that you know other people you know who have problems and there's just something incredibly powerful when when all of those walls are removed and and everyone is just one great big pot of humans who are all trying to do the best they can at this particular point in time and there aren't beneficiaries and donors or supporters, and you know, everyone is just a human who's trying to get by. And some of us, you know, started a bit behind others and need, you know, maybe need some more help to catch up. But every single one of us has stuff that you know we're trying to struggle with, or every one of us has stuff that we can give and you know be generous, you know, spirit with to other people. So I think what happened is it was the power of of. What they'd done is that, you know, they were an organization that had no walls and you were part of the social change and you could experience that social change. But you were also, you, yeah, that you were an active member in the social change. And then it was delicious. You know, you're having this amazing meal and you could connect the meal to, to the young person. So for me, it was just this light bulb moment. And I rang my partner, Kate, who was back in Canberra at the time. that night, and I said, I've just found the thing I want to do for the rest of my life. (laughs) I want to move here to Vietnam, and I want to work on this project. And, you know, this is so unbelievable. You know, you have to come and see it. And she was coming to Vietnam a couple of months later to go travelling with me, and I just still remember her that night saying... Please make no crazy decisions, <laughs> you know. Please don't do anything until I get there. And by the time she got to Vietnam two months later, I was like, "It was way too late." Yeah, you were <laughs>
1: in. You're I in. was. I was
3: hooked, and not only was I, you know, still working on my my other volunteer project, but I was, you know, I had a day job and a night job. By the time she got there, and I was volunteering for Koto at night whilst uh, working on my day job, so. So yeah, and then just went straight back to Australia to my job at CSIRO in science and said, um, handed in my resignation and said, um, yeah, I'm leaving after a decade.
0: You're listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. The podcast that speaks to the people behind the movements, organisations and ideas that are shifting the way we think, interact and transact. Your hosts, Patrick Beggs of Per Production a production house that works with organisations to create media that strengthens culture and communicates that culture to the world. And Joe Rogers, CEO of The Contenders, a brand agency famous for crafting brands which deliver results for those who work for them, shop for them and support them. For more information, head to baupod.co. If you find this podcast insightful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to our conversations. And I
1: guess it's what what I'm really struck by in that is that it's what you're talking about about that there's there's this um, line where you experience the change, but it's also it's actually an enterprise. So that there, you know, it's really about using the form that I think you know. I mean, there's lots of businesses, there's lots of cafes, there's lots of people who cater, who create food, who kind of you know grow food, run a bakery, um, all of these things. But it's all of that it seems combined. The fact that you experience something, but actually it's the the world around that it actually supports. It seems the genius of what you've been able to create here seems like your gardening um background plant background
2: even the way you describe the walls and ecosystems <laughs> have really played a part and maybe it's been mm. probably a healthy thing that you didn't have an industry experience in a lot of ways
3: yeah it's it's interesting i in a way even to this day like every i i see the whole world as an ecosystem so even the built environment to me i'm it's a very unnatural ecosystem in many it's a very um yeah it's it's quite a broken econ- ecosystem often because what i love about ecosystems is you know is there's not waste in ecosystems everything is connected to everything else everything else is you know everything is cyclic everything has a has a reason for being there or a reason why you know a reason why it's thriving or not thriving and and so we you know we we build things that are so detached from nature often and create you know big waste piles everywhere that we are but for me for me it's that kind of bringing it's trying to bring people and planet together to coexist again rather than kind of seeing humans as this other or you know humans as either you know the lords of you know the lords of everything and you know we control and have dominion of everything it's like you know i just that that sense of control and exploitation like that just it's so not what you know, not what happens well, of course there's species that you know, that have dominance in in ecosystems. But if you know, if you look at if you look at a really mature ecosystem that's got a whole heap of, you know, layers of trees and an ecosystem and Everything's got a reason for being there, and you know that isn't just a tall tree, but it's shelter and it's food and it's shade and it's a microclimate, and you know all of those things are kind of working in together. And so I, th- I think, I think about kind of place making very much probably through through the lens of a biologist. You know that that even when I'm talking about how you would build a place or how, you know. I, ha- I hate i hate when we see that we disconnect things you know we we're so good at kind of well you know you've got this issue and you go there and you go there and you go there and, and we're, we're really good at kind of breaking things apart or fragmenting things but we're not really good at saying actually this is just a human and yes we're going to have to you know look at a you know d- different set of things that we've got to you know we've got to do to help but but you know, the the reason why this person ended up in this situation often is because, you know, some some traumatic stuff happened, but they can have been in and out of this service system for years and years and years and still be in crisis. You know, it makes no sense for us to just keep band-aiding stuff. And so part of my frustration has been, that we're not good at looking at a, a human as a human holistically and saying what is the range of things that we need to do to help you and at the right pace and the things that you want not the things that we think that you know you want. So so I I like when you have an ability I guess to bring a really diverse group of people to the solution or to trying to build solutions i'm 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 most interested in in kind of cross-disciplinary practice you know what happens when you put a bunch of hospo people alongside a bunch of psychologists and youth workers and social workers or you put a you know bunch of horticulturists alongside a bunch of you know, chefs, like, it's, it's, it's at those, all those kind of really interesting intersections, and they're often places that we, you know, we, we don't put those people together normally, but that's where the excitement happens. It, it's in those really rich, diverse environments where, you know, you've got so many different, um, Voices, I guess, you know, at the table to, to be able to do interesting stuff. So I'm, I'm really, I, I guess if I was being honest, I'm probably what I'm most interested in. I'm, I mean, yes, I'm a social entrepreneur, but I, I would probably say I'm most in, interested in social innovation practices and social innovation, I think, happens more at the margins. And, and at the margins between between disciplines and when you've got really diverse groups of people coming together. That that's where the that's where the magic happens, I think.
2: I really <laughs> want to know, Bec, though, where where you came from. You said New South Wales and just to give a listener the perspective, so if they were listening to this and really loving what you're saying and what you're throwing out, um, but just to understand what you were like as a teenager yourself.
3: So no one will have ever heard of my country town. It's called Kurumbong, and if you're a local, you call it the Bong. So I'm from the Bong, uh, which is about an hour outside Newcastle. Um, if I was to typify myself, I would probably say um, always really athletic and really, you know, really um, sporty. Um, always did really well at school, so you know I, I was a good student, I guess. Um, I probably would have, you know, I was always, you know, always helping out. I always felt, uh, you know, I'm the eldest. I'm the eldest in the families of, of you know two younger brothers, so you know, very very overdeveloped sense of responsibility, often as, as eldest children have. Um, but probably, and I and I couldn't. I, it was you know, it was years later that it kind of took me to to pin you know to pin it down but um just you know growing up in a country town as a queer kid um and a country town and and quite a you know a religious family so you know you don't want to grow up you know in Kurumbong in a religious family as you know as a queer you just don't and so i wouldn't have put the words on it back then but i just knew that i wasn't like the other girls and they were like aliens to me. Uh, you know, if you if you were to go to school, you'd equally find me, you know, down at the cricket nets with the boys. I was a really good, you know, quite a good cricketer, you know, pl- always playing lots of sport and, you know, always hanging out with lots and lots of boys often. But girls were just kind of a bit alien. Um, but it took a while to go, oh, I actually kind of didn't, realize i had crushes on the girls i I wouldn't have known you know i just didn't have a vocabulary you know vocabulary for it but but it kind of took to my 20s to go oh it's actually those you know they're the ones that i really like but you what lots and lots of queer kids i guess talk about their experience of you know they know they're different from the other kids but they can't they don't know what's different because you only have yourself, you, you know, and particularly before you're, you know, before you're old enough to be a sexual kid, before you've kind of gone through puberty and you're, you know, you've got attraction, you just you just kind of know if you feel the same as the other kids and, and I just knew that I wasn't like, you know, the other girls that were around me at least. Uh, I didn't have similar interests. And so I think I was quite good at um, being quite self-contained and, and also what it meant is... I was re- even though I'm, you know, I'm really, um, you know, I love being around people. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm definitely a, an extrovert, but I would say that I'm an extrovert who's really happy to stand alone and, and know that I'm not like, you know, often not like the others around me. So, so it was just really, really comfortable to go my own way and, and, you know, I, I I don't know. One of these days, I'm going to see if there's any literature out there on queer entrepreneurs. But I just get this sense that, you know, if I look at the traits of entrepreneurs, you know, you're, you, you, you kind of feel like you're marginal. You're always on the, you're always a boundary rider as an entrepreneur. You're inhabiting the future you're often seeing a future that other people around you haven't seen so you're you know you you're living as an entrepreneur you're normally not living in this decade you're living in another decade altogether and you can see the possibility of what the world could become but there's not many people in in the future with you and and you're often you know you've got a you've got a foot in the present but but you've probably got you know most of you know the bigger foot in the future and you, you're just kind of an alien, often sitting out there. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> oh, that's that's so I felt, you know, I, and I'm I'm probably most comfortable, you know, probably I wouldn't near future is still a bit near, so I'm I'm probably most often in my head, you know, sitting about twenty years from now. So it's still in my lifetime. I'm still hanging out in my lifetime here, but you know, I'll I'll have spent hundreds of hours, you know, inhabiting what you know what the city feels like in 20 years time and and what are the thing what are the seeds in the you know what are the seeds that we've got to plant right now to to make that city the city that we want it to be in 20 years time
2: big question in the room (laughs) what are those seeds beck what do you see you spend a lot of time in the future um that foot must must walk a lot of paths what do you see and what do you feel like needs to be put down
3: look undoubtedly the thing that's most distressing would be just the trajectory that we're, we're on not just as human species but but you know as a as all of the species with climate change you know i i absolutely believe that you know we face an existential threat um as a species but all species um and you know the 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 trajectory that we're on i you know to to think that the first climate change scientific science paper came out in the nineteen sixties, and you know we're we're still not taking the action that we have to, and and so, you know, I'm thinking about kind of studying science at uni and all of this stuff we were talking about, you know, in the eight well certainly in the early nineties when I was at uni. So I, I feel like we've squandered thirty years of of science and knowledge and knowing what we needed to do. And every year that we squander, you know, beyond that is, is just, you know, unforeseen misery and, you know, heartache and, and devastation of, of of all species. So I feel real, I feel kind of the weight, you know, the weight of what we need to do as, you know, to, to change catastrophic climate change and what that means as far as the way we it, it has to be every part of you know the the whole planet has to you know ha, has to have changes the way we do business has to change the way we consume you know has to change the way we live in the west has to change the way we you know we reconnect to traditional you know first peoples and traditional knowledge so the way um the way that we the way that we live as communities has to change all you know we we need things to happen in every direction and i and i think i'm really interested particularly in what it means the scale of the transformation that has to happen what it means to build movements of people who are capable of making those changes Because it's so easy, you know, over the years, I've heard so many people say things like, oh, you know, well, it's the fault of the corporates or it's the fault of, you know, those, you know, evil big businesses. And I say, that evil big big business you're talking about, are you their customer? Like those evil big businesses don't exist without customers. You know, they only exist because we pay them to exist. We buy off them. We invest with them. We consume their stuff. And if we don't like it, well then we just start just fucking close our wallets and not give them our money. So I feel I feel like there's this incredible disconnect that that you that at the individual level you often get this kind of sense of incredible hopelessness that the scale of the problems that we've got to fix are too big where there's not an acknowledgement or an understanding that actually the world is just the aggregation of all of these individuals who are making decisions every day in their life. And yes, all those little decisions at the micro level seem insignificant. Yes, what I choose to have for dinner tonight seems insignificant for global, global warming. But of course it's not because... Those, that decision aggregated across one life is 80,000 meals. That decision aggregated across a family is going to be 80,000 meals times however many in your family. And you just, uh, it's so easy to feel like the tidal wave is too big and that you don't matter. And what I'm really interested in is saying, actually, what does it matter to make it so personal to each of us that we can't look away? that you know what is it that it's going to take for you to say you know what i i have to face up to it and if i i can't get cranky at you know at a petroleum company if my own household footprint you know is enormous or if i'm buying their freaking petrol like you can't have it both ways you can't be cranky at the petrol company if you're buying if you're filling up your car with petrol so i'm really interested in what does it look like to enter the future you know realistically but fearlessly and and what does it look like to to stare it down and say I do everything within my power to to not only you know make sure that I'm living the lightest footprint that I can and I'm and I'm doing the most transformative work that I can but what does it mean to to try and you know, activate a whole community and say, actually, we're all part of the solution. So so movement building, you know, yeah. I'm really interested in what does it look like to for us to be the best people that we are going into the future and what what it means when we do that together. Because I certainly know, you know, really interesting research that we did a couple of years ago, um, specifically to our customers. And what what we were really trying to understand was why do our customers come to street? And when we asked them about how they felt about, you know, stopping youth homelessness through drinking their coffee, when you said to a person, "How does it feel to know that you know you're helping, but you know there's 105,000 homeless, you know, people in this country?" people just the the scale of the problem was too big for the thing that they felt they could do so when we said well you know your your coffee helps you know let's say it funds two you know two minutes of training for a young person at street how do you feel about that they felt good about it but still overwhelmed by the the bigger scale and we said okay well how does it make you feel so so do you want us to tell you about the impact that you're creating with your own coffee and the answer was absolutely yes We said, how does it feel to be coming into this cafe where you're surrounded by other people who have all made the same choice as you this morning? So would you like us to tell you essentially the aggregated impact of all of you this morning? And the answer was, oh, my God, yes. And so and then we said, by the way, did you know that there's a whole heap of street cafes outside of this one here? Most of the time they didn't know that and said how would it feel to feel the ag- to get the aggregated amount of all of the minutes of training that you were all doing this morning collectively across this city and how does that make you feel if you got that information? And it was so fascinating because at the first level, it was still overwhelming for someone. At the second level, it started to get tribal. Like me and everyone who's in this cafe with me, we're kind of like a tribe. But this, and that was positive. So, so, so you're still, you know, you're feeling positive. But the second that we flipped it into, whole of system and you felt like actually there's enough of us who give a shit and you can aggregate impact and you can say I'm just one of a whole bunch of people this morning who have acted together and there's a movement of us who, who want to you know want to change the world it flipped so quickly into optimism so I'm interested in you know what does it take at a very very personal level from us to to flip from pessimism and being overwhelmed and grieving for the loss of, you know, for the things that we hold most dear to actually find that switch to to go to feeling kind of empowered and included in a bigger movement and feeling optimistic about that stuff.
1: Yeah. And I'm really struck by that notion between there is a, in my mind, there's a very big difference between being part of a tribe and yeah. then actually seeing that there's actually enough people to actually solve, solve the problem in, yeah. in totality. And it's, you know, one of the things I often reflect on is that really, you know, the world has seen extinction events before, yeah. right? But it has never seen it be caused by... Um, is really a species that is actually conscious of their actions.
3: Yes, right? yes. So it's exactly. kind of it's.
1: That's what I'm really kind of yeah. in, intrigued about is that as a conscious species, yes, can we actually correct course? And some of the stuff you're talking about, yeah. is really that that's part of our issue. Yeah, is it, that oh, we've totally. We've always is. been connected to tribe, but we've yeah. never been able to actually see the whole of the system. Yeah. and our role in it.
3: And we're also not hardwired, you know, neurologically to to make good decisions now for future events so when we're not good at the risk assessment for future events so you know you 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 know i heard a really interesting um interview the other day with a neuropsychologist and and they were talking about you know why don't you know people who know that if they smoke their whole life will end up dying from cancer but what the hell you know why why would they make those decisions but you know how how our brains just aren't good at at making good decisions now for future, you know, for future risk. And one of the things that the, they were actually saying I thought was really interesting and it was about how it's almost kind of like we've got to, we've got to kind of hijack our own thinking process and, and he was saying that what we've got to do is we've got to make the the repulsion or the fear of the future thing that's going to happen. Um, impact the decision right now and 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 staying with that kind of same um, analogy of of um, of uh, smoking he talked about these two uh, amazing elderly women Uh, both of them were um, American um, African Americans who had spent two elderly women who had spent their life smoking and they'd started smoking together as teenagers and what what and what they both agreed to do that if either of them um, after a lifetime of smoking smoked again they had to pay uh, they so they 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 had been the victims of racism across their whole life but if they ever smoked again they had to pay the um, the ku klux clan uh, make a donation to the ku klux Klan. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and better. never ever smoked again mm. and so the what the neuropsychologist was saying it that's a really good example mm. of bringing kind of the, the your your kind of worst or most you know your your kind of most repulsive thought and bringing it forward to kind of hack your own emotions really and connect it to the to the decision you're about to make and so you know and the woman was talking about you know Just the thought every time she went to go and have a cigarette... The thought that she she would be paying like you know the people you know people who were just standing for everything that she wasn't was just you know was more overwhelming than the than the craving of the cigarette and and yeah the neurobiologist was essentially saying that's kind of what we've got to do in all parts of our life if we're going to try and hack our emotions because our brains aren't hardwired for good long term decision making we've got to be able to do that kind of switch where we bring the emotional reality and And the emotional response that we have into the how and near, uh, sorry, into the how how and now, into (laughs) into the now, (laughs) into the now now for the future event. And I just thought that was a really interesting. Yeah, kind of idea that what would that mean in movement building to get us making good decisions now for, you know, what's going to be catastrophic futures?
2: Mm. What have you taken with your foot, once again, 20 years ahead of us (laughs) right now, but understanding how um, community society uh, and the global community in the whole has reacted to COVID-19 and just the fact that things have changed so suddenly, like, do you think there's a way to harness that? Um, movement or that reaction in a, in a way to really constructively tackle the way we're heading.
3: I mean, it's interesting in a way, and and the work that that I've been focused on in the last um, three months during the pandemic has really been. Um, using the pandemic really to do climate change work because what we've got is we've got you know we've got a nested crisis we've got a you know mini crisis and and it doesn't feel mini right now but it but kind of compared to climate change it is a mini crisis within a way bigger crisis and so i'm interested in what, you know what does it take to do you know, if you had a if you if you're working out where to where do you put the acupuncture needle you know in a system you know like well, you want to use the acupuncture needle right now in the pandemic to put in the cleverest you know points and so what I did really at the start of the start of the pandemic is is kind of just put all my thinking down in a in a paper that talked about you know what we know about food systems. For example, we know that if we're going to draw down, you know, we're going to draw down carbon out of um, out of the atmosphere. The food system is actually the biggest system that we can change, and obviously, it's a system that's you know determined by you know how we choose our meals and what we do with with um, with our food choices. So that ability to do. Um, I guess, kind of highly impactful work, you know, for, for a food system longer term, the, the decisions that we could make right now during the pandemic, I think could be quite transformative longer term. So one of the things that I've loved doing is We've brought together essentially tw- about twenty food uh, social enterprises, but all kind of connected in the food system, and we've essentially joined them all together in a kind of end to end food system. And we've said, you know, we we work together to bring about a fair and regenerative food system for all Victorians, uh, and not when I say all Victorians, anyone living in Victoria, because not everyone's a you know Victorian citizen, but obviously you know um, there's lots of other people living here um, that are you know, that are in Victoria. So so, what does it look like when we connect all those fair and regenerative parts of that system together? So, you know, right now we've got, um, you know, social enterprise farmers on farms growing produce that goes into social enterprise kitchens and is made into amazing multicultural meals that are being delivered to um, communities. You know, it could be anywhere around the city, but lots of them kind of Long Frankston communities that are, that are getting food from us as part of the emergency food relief that food's being delivered by social enterprises and, um, but knowing that that all of the, you know all of the integration of all those social enterprises across you know across this pandemic that's all integration that we want to last and and what does it look like if we actually start to to take you know what are high, often quite fragmented parts of a food system and and, and get them to be cohe- cohesive and so i i think we've done um I think this kind of last three months, we've done some of the most transformative work that we've done in ten years, and I I couldn't be kind of prouder. I feel like um, I feel like I'm kind of back at startup. <laughs> that kind of bootstrapping and everything is moving fast, and you're you're doing it kind of at warp speed, and it's about survival. But you're you're. You know, you're doing it alongside really, really clever, amazing people who are aligned um, in the things that they're doing. So I I actually think, I I kind of feel like this amazing group of social entrepreneurs have kind of all risen together and said, actually this stuff matters and and we all know that this stuff matters not just right now for food insecurity and and what's not you know what's what's not only food insecurity during the pandemic but food insecurity you know when we come out of the pandemic and enter a recession um, we know we've got years and years of of extra you know strain on the food security system so so what does it mean to to try and say you know this state could have the and i don't think incredible fair and regenerative food system that not only helped us right now you know the seeds are being planted now during the pandemic but but what does that what does that mean for 2040 for this state if we're doing that and and the difference it could mean for you know the footprint of our city um and well not yeah the, the social and environmental footprint for this city in 20 years time so yeah i've actually i've actually had a um been having a lot of fun <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh that's fantastic fantastic and i guess where do you so it kind of you know do you if you had to kind of um wager on which side you believe i mean obviously you're you're doing the work and i know you've kind of you're an extremely positive positive person but do you believe that we can actually ch- change it do you do you think that in the classic kind of sense of a startup is that the problem statement seems really really clear yeah and the kind of the the challenge that we're actually um, faced and the kind of the, really the startup to me has been often used to kind of take on incumbency, right? It's yeah. actually there, but it's been used in more of a profit sense. But the way yeah. that you're actually talking, it's about using that, that notion to actually take on a larger system to actually be able to correct it.
3: Uh, I mean, you know, that larger system is concreted in very very heavily it's got a lot of you know the status quo has got a lot of money invested in it to keep it the status quo but you know the, um, the entrepreneur in me and also probably the plant biologist in me you know, knows that all you need in one massive slab of concrete is one tiny little hairline crack and one cell at a time, one tiny little plant root getting in there. I don't know if you guys have ever traveled to, you know, places like Angkor Wat in Cambodia, but, you know, when you see an enormous, you know, you know, temple that's, you know, Tons and tons and tons of rocks, and how you know tiny little plant roots over time just getting stronger and stronger can lift all of those buildings up. Um, I I have to think of all of those tiny little cells, you know, and those plant roots getting down in between all those cracks as just humans who start to act together purposefully in the same direction, making conscious de- you know, decisions, and so you know, I actually think that most of those big towers of power are on borrowed time. They just don't actually realise how borrowed the time is and that we've already got, not only got those, you know, we're not just thinking about putting those tiny little, you know, plant roots there. Those plant roots are already starting to, you know, to wrap around those buildings. Um, and that's, you know, I would say some of the transformative work that I'm really proud of is some of that work that we do in some of the major corporates in this city. You know, we, we have quite a number of Collins Street addresses, you know, as an organisation are we, we're, we're embedded across you know some of the some of the biggest organizations you know in the country you know where where initially those first conversations might be hey can you come and run our cafe but two or three years on you're not having the conversation about the cafe you're having the conversation about what does a community look like and what does social inclusion look like and what does low footprint um you know operations look like and what does it look like actually when you start to connect a cafe to a rooftop garden to a training and employment opportunity for young people to the organic waste stream of a building. What does it look like when you, you know, have a conversation with a corporate and say, what does the circular economy look like in your building? You know, hey, okay, yeah, you've got, you know, 50 stories in here and you've got all different tenancy, but what if you thought about all of this as an ecosystem? What does this building look like as a functional ecosystem? So, you know, the last conversation I was having with one of a major corporate with just before you guys arrived was one of those conversations. What You know, how do you take those big towers of power and say, what, are, what do these look like when they're functioning properly as, you know, as ecosystems? Um, and... You know everyone likes to say on their brochures, "Oh, we've got a beautiful community here you know in this corporate office tower, but you know most of them aren 't actually communities they um they 're pretty buildings they're you know most of the time they're they 've got some level of functionality, but they 're still not they 're still not communities they 're still not you know high i wouldn 't call them high functioning communities um so what would it look like to transform some of those and i I think you know I'm really interested in. The conversations we're having with a lot of the corporates that you know whose cafes that we run right now, because they know they're not coming back after this pandemic with you know piling everyone back into the same building and and operating the same way. You know, for one of those corporates that we're in, you know, just to get their people back in the lift, you know, two at a time, it's going to take three hours at the beginning of the day to get people in the building. You're clearly not going to have everyone in the building then, are you? So, what does it look like to start to work differently? and, And I'm it, what's really nice is you know now a number of years in we're often part of the conversations when when organizations say what might it look like to do things differently and we go hey we've thought about this before you know we'd love to join the conversation so I, I, I feel like our green tentacles are green and social tentacles are you know spreading further and further in the city
1: oh that's i mean that's a fantastic place to leave it so Mm. thank you so much i mean i think it's uh it's it's inspiring for one but i also i'd love the analogy of that you know because i i experienced that as well i think is that there is a there is enough change that is actually kind of you know coming back to where we started our conversation today about this brick wall right is that inside of all of that brick there is really it's the story of it's the story of us yeah and it's actually how those bits actually come together Together, So when you look at a wall in totality, you see it for what it actually is. Yeah. But each bit of that is actually made up of individual bits and pieces. And totally. That. And I think that's what, to me, is coming out of things like a, a pandemic that kind of really what it does is it resets people's decision criteria. Yeah, in totally. Some way. They're not conscious of it yet. They're not necessarily yeah. kind of thinking it through. But already the notion of the kind of things were fine as they were has been challenged. So yeah. therefore it poses a question about Well, what comes with this yeah you know the need to regenerate a, an economy and re kind of look at yeah. actually kind of how do we actually go about day-to-day life if nothing else it's an opportunity now what we do with that yeah I, i'm always interested in but it's part of it i think will be kind of in three four five years time and not the same horizon as yours but that you know you you see trends that are clearly just going to get accentuated and certainly people care and kind of understanding their own carbon
3: footprint and yeah one yeah of those. well i certainly know um my plan is to not be working the same way as I did going into it and I want to spend at least one day a week urban farming. So I'm planning on getting, you know, going back to my roots in kind of plant stuff and, you know, putting my hands, you know, firmly back in soil at least one day a week, hopefully in the future. So so I, I'm hoping that there's been a whole bunch of precious things that come out of the pandemic that, you know, aren't going to be jettisoned at the end of it for me personally as well.
0: Thank you for listening to BAU, Business as Unusual. Subscribe and learn more at BAUpod.co. That's B-A-U-P-O-D-C-O.